The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Hello, my name is Susan Olson. I am Vice President of Government Relations here at Natixis Investment Manager. Today, we will discuss the housing market with our guest, Ken Gere. Since 2008, Ken has served as Chief Executive Officer of Leading Builders of America, or LBA, a Washington, D.C. trade association representing many of the largest home builders in the nation. LBA members build approximately 40% of all new homes in the United States. In this capacity, Ken serves as a primary voice of major home builders before Congress, the executive branch, and all federal agencies. Ken has successfully led public policy campaigns on a variety of issues, including national housing policy, construction issues, mortgage finance, land use, energy efficiency, tax, and labor law. He regularly offers testimony before Congress and federal agencies and has appeared on numerous national media outlets. Ken also manages outside counsel and leads several industry working groups addressing mortgage and housing issues. Prior to joining LBA, he served as vice president and senior counsel for Pulte Homes. He managed legal compliance issue and also led Pulte's outreach to Congress and federal agencies, as well as state legislators in 27 states. Ken began his career as a committee staffer in the Massachusetts State Legislature. Ken, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Great. Great to be here. Before we dive in, American homeowners have been on quite a ride over the past few years from COVID-19 to adjusting to a post-COVID world with new hybrid work schedules, to rising interest rates, and, of course, inflation. So, Ken, this takes us to our first question. Housing prices have been booming across the country. This seems to be a result of COVID and American homeowners reevaluating where they and their families live, how much space they have to live in, and how much they pay to live there. Tell us how you saw COVID affect the housing market. Sure. Well, when, when COVID first started, I think many in the industry expected uh, the housing market to, to experience a sharp downturn as, as people were worried about their jobs and, and going back. Uh, and, and we started to see some pulling back just very early market. But that it turned out uh, that, that wasn't the case. It was the exact opposite effect. Um, as COVID hit and people started working from home, we saw – Pretty soon thereafter, a pretty sharp increase in housing demand, as um, as as families uh, wanted to, you know, sort of move to, to larger houses um, and to you know more suburban areas out of the cities and to suburban and even rural areas. We saw significant increase in demand pretty much at all uh, at all price points from entry level to move up to, to luxury buyers. Everybody seemed to want to, to want a, a bigger home, more space, uh, to do their work and, uh, or, 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 uh, you know, work while, while you, maybe they had kids at home or who were at the kitchen table. They needed a place to, to work as well. Uh, so they re- really, we saw demand for larger homes with more space further out from the cities. For Americans wanting to relocate now, how are their efforts being impeded? Can the home builders, real estate agents, and lenders keep up with the demand? Yeah, very, very interesting question. Uh, you know, if you had asked me this question, uh, you know, four or five months ago, it would probably be a very different answer. Uh, we're coming off the probably the the busiest, hottest housing market uh, that we've ever seen uh, in the, over the last few years. Uh, strong demand across all price points across all geographic areas, and you're seeing, 
you know, new home development in places where, you know, it hadn't been, uh, uh, you know, robust in years gone by and other boom times, if you will. But we really saw it across the country, real strong demand. Uh, we, we had builders not being able to build fast enough, uh, permitting not, not coming quick enough for us to build. And, uh, it really drove the, the cost of, of homes, uh, you know, to, to historically high levels. So uh, at, at this point, you know, now that the Fed has acted, we're seeing uh, we're seeing demand moderate a bit, but we're still, you know, home builders are still building homes that they that that uh, that buyers um, put a deposit down and ordered, you know, six or eight months ago. So uh, builders are very busy these days, even though we're seeing demand, uh, you know, uh, go down a bit uh, given the Fed's. Uh, interest rate increases, which I know we'll get into in a minute. Yeah, so good segue. So as if all of this weren't enough, as you mentioned, um, there were there were two I words that were front and center in the summer of 2022, inflation and interest rates. Um, did the housing demand contribute to rising inflation, or did inflation drive up prices, or maybe a little of both? Yeah, I'd, I'd have to say a little bit of both. It, it came in phases. I think, uh, you know, housing is about a third of, of CPI um and uh so with rapidly rising rates uh i'm sorry prices uh home prices we definitely contributed to inflationary pressures uh as as um you know the supply and demand dynamic was was very much skewed with a in a, a historic lack of supply in the market and uh you know that was caused by you know just a lack of building uh, you know since the great recession uh, if, if, if you, if you go back to the Great Depression in the 30s, we've built about a million homes a year, roughly, you know, every year since then. And that there were probably four or five times, uh, four or five years where we were significantly below that. And each time that happened, the very next year, we compensated for it and the market picked up and we built, you know, over a million homes. So that was very consistent until 2007, 2008. When we dropped, you know, that the market really crashed, we dropped to below, you know, 300,000 homes instead of the, the million, you know, benchmark level. And, um, and we didn't come back the next year or the year after or the year after that. In fact, we didn't come back from 2008 until 2021 to, to over a million homes. So we have a, we have a very serious supply shortage in the industry right now. And you also, at the, at the same time that was happening, um, you know, that we were underbuilding significantly. We had uh, the millennial population, uh, you know, this massive group of younger people, uh, be, be, you know, growing up, starting to form families and and, and uh, creating households and uh, buying homes. They, they pushed that back than prior generations. They be a little bit older than they, they were, but as millennials hit their 30s and 40s, uh, we saw many of them enter the, the, the market for new homes. Again, that increased um, the, the demand and the supply didn't get any better. And finally, we, we started to see, uh, you know, uh, regulatory costs really significantly increase. The time it takes to, to – the time and money it takes to get raw land and develop it into a buildable lot has significantly increased due to – uh, in, due to mostly local and state regulations, uh, in that time. So it was, it was sort of a perfect storm, uh, that we saw. And, and today we're, we're 
you know, uh, you know, prices clearly um, uh, are up high. But I think now that the Fed has acted to increase, uh, you know, rates a couple of times now, we're starting to definitely starting to see the effect of that uh, significant demand reduction over the last couple of months. Every time the Fed asks, acts, every time the Fed acts, we see uh, demand uh, wane. And it's really not a question of uh, folks not wanting to buy homes. That That's still very high. It's a question of whether they can afford to buy a home. And that has that has sharply changed in the last few months. Uh, just, just to put that in context, we have, you know, on a $400,000 home, the the mortgage rates you know were about three percent to start the year. Now they're a little over six. That translates into almost six hundred dollars a month in increased uh, mortgage payment. You know over thirty years. So six hundred dollars a month for a family, uh, for any family, is a lot of money. Uh, but for, for someone at the margin, it really pushes them out of the market. And we're seeing we're seeing buyers uh, kind of sit back and wait to see how this all shakes out before they commit to buying a new home. Wow, that is that is a lot of money. Four hundred. So you're trying to figure out what your mortgage is, is or what the increase would be at eight hundred thousand dollar home. Would that be safe to say be that extra twelve hundred dollars a month? Um, is a jumbo loan about the same rate as what a thirty year is? Yeah, they're all uh, the jumbos and and the and the the uh, conforming loans uh, are, are about are just over six percent now uh, as we. You know, and as we tape this, I think the the, the Fed is about to act uh, probably as we speak for another increase. So the Fed isn't done, and that will likely uh, mean rates are going to creep even higher before uh, the dust settles. So I, I think we're in for a sort of a rough market over the next six to eight months. Well, that kind of takes us to another question, too, um, is that we're hearing endless speculation about whether the U.S. is already in or we're headed into a recession. What does the housing industry indicate? Is do you see an impending recession? Um, or and if so, do you think that that will affect interest rates? You said six to eight months. Um, do you? If we did have a recession, um, how do you think that would affect the housing market and interest rates? Yeah, I think clearly we're we're in a significant housing downturn already, uh, given the Fed's actions. And again, it's demand is still there. It's just ability to purchase it has has dramatically changed. So, uh, you know, I think I think we are in for a rough patch um, and, and maybe a maybe a mild recession uh, in, in the, over the next you know six or eight months. I would guess um, you know to crystal ball it. But I do think that, that the reason for hope, you know, we do have a reason for hope that it will not be. Uh, a long-term uh, recession in the housing market is is just um, you know what I talked about before that historically we bounce back and demand is still there. We have household formations happening uh, right now at a at a, a, a strong clip. Uh, we have desire to purchase there, which is which is very high, and we have historic home equity. Unlike the Great Recession when many loans were underwater and uh and buyers didn't have a whole lot of equity now they have an historic amount of home equity in their homes so they can survive a bit of a downturn without um without you know widespread foreclosures which really you know caused a spiraling effect in the last recession i don't see that happening 
I don't see that happening happening this time. And prices so far have held up, although there, we, we are seeing some weakening across the country in, in prices. Uh, but again, the, 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 they've been driven up so high over the last you know couple of years. That's probably um, you know for most families that's that, that's probably a good thing that they moderate a bit. So you know uh, the supply shortage and the demographics are. are uh, clearly uh, in the favor of, you know, supporting the market long-term. Affordability is going to hold us back for a bit until the Fed uh, takes its its foot off the accelerator a little bit and allows the market to shake out. So uh, I think a little bit of rough patch, but long-term, I, I still feel pretty very confident in the market. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that, and I think that for our listeners, that's very important to point out what you just did. That this is not a 2007 type situation, or you know, 2005 when the, when it was booming. Because wasn't remember for those of you out there, and I'm sure you lived this uh, like we all did. Um, that you know, when the housing market was inflating in the 2000s, weren't there deals like no down payment, no credit checks, um, interest only type loans for people? And that's why people couldn't afford them. Like. I think that's a very important distinction is that people couldn't afford those mortgages back during um, the, the 2000s when we had the, the housing heat up, um, where now you said there's historic home equity. Sorry, yeah, exactly right. Uh, we had loans back back then in the 2000s that were, you know, no-doc mortgages where no income verification uh, or employment verification, verification was re- required, uh, and you had uh, – you know, loans available to people with very low FICO scores, people who didn't pay their bills, uh, were, were able to get mortgages. That all went away. The, re- the regulators stepped in with Dodd-Frank and imposed uh, a number of, of requirements on the mortgage industry uh, to ensure that that doesn't happen again. So the, the, the people that have bought mortgages since, uh, you know, since 2008, 2009 era uh, are qualified they pay their bills uh, and they have better FICO scores. They they um, they're in a better position uh, to, to repay those mortgages, which is why you know we, we don't expect foreclosures. And uh, with the price appreciation we've had, you know they also have a significant amount of equity in those homes. So they're they're sitting on that equity. They're sitting on three percent rates uh, for the, for many of their mortgages. So. For them, you know, there's a very little incentive to move up right now to a, to a mortgage, you know, that's higher than that. But there's also uh, no incentive to walk away from that mortgage, which there was a huge incentive to do last time. So it's a very dramatically different landscape uh, this time around than last time. Right. Well, um, so you kind of mentioned this uh, a little bit. But with the high cost of housing, individuals, couples, families who make an honorable living, you know, two-income family, um, but they're having a difficult time finding a decent home they can for, that they can afford. You mentioned affordability earlier. Is the housing industry doing anything, um, the new home builders, to address the affordable housing challenge? Yes. So uh, that, that's what we I focus uh, – most of my day is focused on, on, on that very issue because um, – you know, there is no one silver bullet answer to affordability and housing affordability, but the problem is 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 very clear. And, and certain, you know, we we know the things that contribute to it. Uh, local regulatory costs have a massive increase. Land use regulations, 
you know, where, where when, when builders buy a piece of land to develop it, it, it can take – it almost always takes years to get through the regulatory process. But, you know, in some parts of the country, it takes decades. And that carry cost of that land gets divided among the lots and added to the price of a home. It's the only way – it's the only way to finance it. So, you know, that combined with uh, – we've had some sharp increases in uh, supply chain uh, – chain costs, but also supply chain delays that we've seen, you know, post-COVID. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to get product, uh, certain types of, uh, you know, appliances or tile or lumber, uh, huge volatility in prices that have driven up costs, but also um, real difficulty in getting those products delivered uh, to the job site uh, on time. Which, which again increases cycle times, which is the time it takes us to build the home. So as the cycle time gets longer, the cost on the builder gets longer, and that uh, unfortunately causes the cost for the buyer to go up. So all of these things have contributed to it, in addition to a pretty significant workforce shortage in our industry, uh, the skilled trades. Uh, our country is not investing in skilled trades like we like we once did. So, uh, you know, training plumbers and electricians and drywallers and framers have all um, dropped off, and those people are aging out in our industry. So, you know, we spend a lot of time um, trying to attract new people to the industry and new workers and, uh, and to train them and to get them on our job sites to, uh, to build careers, uh, you know, building homes. So, uh, clearly, we have a ways to go, but... Um, you know, I think fighting the the regulatory costs are probably the, would would gain us the biggest bang for our buck in terms of getting product uh, delivered uh, cheaper and uh, more affordably for for American families. You mentioned regulation. So, is this regulation that's coming from uh, you know the United States Congress, or is this state and local regulation? And and does it matter what party's in power, or um, are they all pretty tough with the regulation? Yeah, it's it's a little bit of everything. I would say most of it is state and local. Uh, you know, uh, we we call it NIMBYism, not in my backyard. Uh, when you know everyone loves to move to to the neighborhood that's convenient for them, but then uh, when you when you talk about adding, you know, more uh, development or you know, denser communities to, to, you know, get the cost down, you know, local, uh, act, local sort of activists, the people who are already there don't want the nature of the community to change. So it, it's a challenge for builders to find, um, welcoming, uh, areas, even though we have a historic, uh, supply shortage. So, uh, you know, pe people find their children having to move, you know, an hour away from, from home into the, you know, further out from, from the cities to, to find affordable, um, uh, affordable places to live. And that's, and that's the reason. Uh, so, you know, we, we work hard to sort of educate, uh, local leaders and, and, uh, and local communities about, the benefits uh, and and the new ways of building that we can go in and and create really um, rich uh, uh, attractive neighborhoods, but just use less space to do so. And we can have you know more affordable product on the ground for you know for young people just entering the market. So that's that's what we try to do. 
and uh, it's it's a challenge. Um, and and in certain places in this country, it's it's more challenging than others. But uh, but we're 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 working hard at that every day. Well, keep up the hard work. I mean, I live in a D.C. suburb in Northern Virginia, and that must be on the ballot for multifamily increase the multifamily housing because this suburb is pretty much all um, single-family homes because I'm seeing yard signs. I walk my dog three times a day, and I see yard signs more and more all the time about vote no on blah, 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 multifamily housing. So definitely NIMBY. And because of that, you said something else, that, you know, children are having to move an hour better away. So my stepdaughter and her her husband, um, they have to move to Richmond. They um, were living here five minutes from us, um, and they – want they're just got married and want to start a family they can't afford to live here um so they actually takes me to my last question so they moved to richmond but instead of buying a house right away they did the smart thing and are renting to get a feel for um the area richmond virginia by the way so what they did is that they bought or they are renting from a corporate housing conglomerate and this, uh, so my question is, how significant is the trend of corporate housing? Um, are they, it seems like they're buying housing in all kinds of neighborhoods, from urban to rural and leasing it out. Um, you know, as I mentioned, my, my stepdaughter and her husband are renting from one of these groups, and so far their experience is mixed. First of all, this corporate rental home is the first in this particular subdivision or neighborhood. And their neighbors are very wary and worried that more homes like this will get scooped up by these corporate housing groups. Now, the house is nice, um, but they have had a problem getting things fixed. And most surprising, as one example, is that the company keeps forgetting to pay for garbage pickup. So they put their garbage cans out there at night, and they wake up in the morning, and the garbage cans are gone because the garbage collectors have taken them for lack of payment. (laughs) So does this sound familiar? Um, and if so, is this widespread across the country? Not the garbage problem, but just the corporate housing. <laughs> yes. So it's a growing industry sector. It used to be that, um, you know, some of these investors, large corporate investors, would would come in uh, during a downturn and, and buy a lot of homes and then sell them as the market went up for a profit, and then they'd be gone. Uh, that we're not seeing as much of. We're seeing, um, you know, corporations come in and actually start a new, a new segment of the, of the, of the business. They, they, they buy up homes in communities and they rent them as, you know, sort of an ongoing, uh, uh venture and they, uh, you know, they, 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 they hire professional, you know, sort of property managers to run them almost like it was an apartment building, even though they're, they're different, um, you know, this, they're all single-family homes. I think you're, we're starting to see uh, that business model, even though it's it's sort of young, uh, morph a little bit, and we're seeing more and more communities to get around those neighborhood concerns and, and, oper- and the operational concerns like the garbage. We're seeing uh, the, these types of uh, business models go in and, and buy and create, build a whole community of, of single-family rental homes. So you'll have a hundred homes in a community, all rentals, and one company managing all of them. Logistically, it's easier than having, you know, uh, a few houses on one side of town and another, you know, on the other side of town that you all have to manage uh, when they're all in one in one uh, spot. They're just easier operationally to manage, and you can have your staff on the ground. Um, so I think I, I think 
we, we've seen a lot a lot of growth in that sort of business model as well. Um, you know, I think there's probably some growing pains, as you mentioned, in that industry just because it is so new. But um, my understanding uh, from being around some of these groups is that they are in it for the long haul, and they are uh, – it is a market segment for, for people, uh, you know, renting or, or wanting to – um, maybe they can't afford to, to buy or are not sure about an area yet. It is a um, it's a way to get it live the lifestyle of a single family home uh, as opposed to an apartment building, but but not have the commitment and the down payment and some of the other uh, you know obstacles to, to to purchasing. So I think it's here to stay. Well, that being said, so um, now are these corporate housing um, organizations, the groups, are when they go in to buy a home, are they buying, paying cash? I mean, in other words, are they making it hard for an individual to bid against them for a particular house because they can do an all-cash deal? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of them that, that, that are in that boat that do that. Um, so they, it, you know, it, leading up to, the, you know, the current sort of um, situation with higher rates, they, they you know, they, they were able to come in with cash deals and, and, and buy and buy. So it, it did it did create some challenges during the high demand time when you're competing against, you know, uh, you know, maybe a young couple looking to get in a home and you had them coming in w- with an all cash deal. I think that becomes a little I, my, my sense is that's becoming less of an issue now that they're looking to buy whole communities where they they just have a full rental community that they build and everything there is rental. So the the, the buyers or the renters, um, you know, have their choice of a number of different homes. So that it's not quite putting them in competition with each other. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah, because I guess one of my concerns, what I'm getting at, is just the concern that um, you're going to keep some people, you mentioned millennials, so we use them as an example, from being homeowners. And, you know, and a, the American dream is to own a, own a home. And for those of us who are lucky enough to have it, it does because become you know, a significant source of wealth in a way that we do build wealth. So I would just worry that the next generation is not going to be able to have that, that wealth generator like um, like we and our parents and grandparents have had. Do you think, Mom, you think that's the case, or do you think it will all work itself out? Well, I, I think we clearly, you know, in the last few years we've seen that, uh, sort of the missing middle is what it's called, that those homes in the middle that are affordable for young people, you're, you're either renting or you own an expensive home. And the middle class, the, the missing middle, is where we're struggling and, and builders are struggling to build. You know, you, there are places in California where, you know, I, I'd say it's impossible to build an affordable home. You know, even, you know the, the land costs are just so expensive that, you know, you, you can't build an entry-level home because the, the cost of land alone is it makes it prohibitively expensive. So we, we do need um, policymakers to, to be, begin to think long and hard about some of the regulatory costs that are there, and, and let's get creative on ways to, um, you know, sort of address uh, that missing middle and allow for, you know, entry-level homes um, in, in, in high-cost areas because right now there's – it's really difficult to build an entry-level home in, in, in a lot of the coastal areas uh, in the country. So uh, it needs to be a priority, and I think for policymakers, everybody talks a good game on housing, but uh, unfortunately it, it always seems to be their second priority and something else gets in the way. But I, I do think we're 
the country's ripe for a real conversation around reform of housing and how to really um, attack that problem you raise of, of you know younger people not being able to get into the market and people at the margin and underserved communities. All these groups, um, it, 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 the benefits of society are, are dramatic when you get people in a home and owning their own home and building equity, and um, a, a lot of good comes from that. So I think we need to work, you know, work hard on, on creative solutions there. Well, on behalf of everyone who's listening to this call, I want to thank you for the work that you've done there. As you mentioned in your bio, you know, this is what you do, and you mentioned it too, that you are the primary voice for major home builders that you talk to Congress, the executive branch, all federal agencies, and, you know, you have a very uh, long long tenure in um, in the housing market. So we thank you for all the work that you're doing to um, to help the home home um, home sector and uh, affordability. And so with that, I just want to thank you so much, Ken. This was um, I know I've learned a lot and have a better grasp of where the housing market is. And um, listeners, I hope you did too. And we really thank you for joining us today. The NICTIC's government relations team strives to give you access to experts to, to provide insights into vital areas of the financial marketplace. Housing is certainly vital to the financial market. For more insights into policy and politics and their potential market implications, visit the public policy section of our website, www.im.natixis.com. And again, this is Susan Olson, Vice President of Government Relations. Thank you so much. Important information. This material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions are as of April 21st, 2022, and may change based on market and other conditions. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted, and actual results may vary. Further, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and not necessarily those of Natixis investment managers. These views were provided as of the date of recording and will not be revised. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute investment advice or an offer to buy or sell a financial product from any Natixis investment manager's entity. The consumer price Price index CPI is a measure of the average change over time in the prices paid by urban consumers for a market basket of consumer goods and services. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited-purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Natixis Distribution, LLC is located at 888 Boylston Street, Suite 800, Boston, Massachusetts, 02199, Pod 198 October 2022 Expiration Date, March 31, 2023 Ad Tracks, 491506, 1, 1.